tonight, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I will do the same. Uh, I will read from verse 13 through to the end of the chapter, and I'll teach from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, uh, but next time we'll do some overlap and do a little bit more chapter 1 again, because um, that's just the way it's, it's working. But uh, we'll start in verse 13 and see how far we get. How's that? First um, Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to receive this implanted word which is able to save our souls. We pray that the word of scripture would be expounded on, explained, delivered to us even by your Holy Spirit so that we can come into a deeper relationship with the living word who was from the beginning. We ask for eyes to see and hearts to receive this word. Bless your church this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so verse, from verse 22 on to the end, that beautiful passage about the word of God, it's good enough to do twice, so we'll do it this week, and then we'll, we'll go back and start there again next time we're in First Peter. Um, but this is what we've received in Peter so far. We've received an identity of pilgrim. We are exiles, but we're the best kind. Uh, we're beloved exiles. We are chosen pilgrims, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for, the, for obedience to Jesus Christ. We have seen that we have been born again. He's mentioned it twice now in chapter one already. The Father has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that's waiting in heaven. And Peter says this inheritance, our salvation, will come into its fullness or be revealed at the last time. And he, he talks a lot about this last time. He says that's when our salvation is going to be revealed. We're going to see it for what it is. Um, that will also be the time when the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, it turns out, will be revealed to be 
the praiseworthy, glorious, honorable thing that it is. We have it now in kind of a weak form. We see through a glass darkly, but at then, at the last day, at that day, at the, when Jesus comes back, at the revelation of Jesus, then it's going to become crystal clear and strong. This will happen at the revelation of Jesus Christ, who, though you have not seen him, you love him. There's a lot of people who hadn't seen him, the prophets who desired to figure out when and what this whole gospel thing was about, and, and the people who lived after his resurrection or lived far away. A lot of people didn't see Jesus, and a lot of people loved Jesus. And Peter had mentioned suffering at least three times so far. The chosen exiles of which you are a part are grieved by various trials. Our faith, which is more precious than gold, is like gold in that it is tested by fire and comes out real shiny. And we're not the only ones who are perplexed by this suffering. The prophets and even the angels are compelled to inquire about this mystery of a faith that goes from suffering to glory. And this positioning of suffering next to glory, it's something that's very important to Peter. He knows that the Christians to whom he is writing are suffering. He knows suffering himself. He knows a God who has entered into humanity's suffering. But he also knows the empty tomb. And Peter has met the only man who literally beat death. Peter hasn't died and gone to heaven yet, but he's held on to heavenly glory here on this earth when he met the resurrected Lord. So this is the kind of thing that Peter likes to write about. This is kind of the stuff that we've seen in chapter 1 so far. So what do we do about it? Um, there's a salvation that baffles the angels and turns death inside out, which is more durable than the created universe, and we have it. So how do we use it? So how do we live and that's what he starts to get into in verse 13. He says, therefore, because of this mysterious salvation that brings life out of death, he says, you got to think different. But he says it in kind of a funny way. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And some of you, unfortunately, may prefer the NASB's reading on this one, prepare your minds for action. But nah, no, gird up the loins of your mind. Come on something stirring about having someone tell you this, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. You're like, I don't know how to do that. Um, we have this, this, I think, I, I don't know. I think this should be our church's life verse now put on t-shirts and stuff, but just gird up those loins of your mind. If you picture men, right? Wearing the long tunics, the robes like shepherds in a Christmas pageant, you know, think how hard it would be to run or to fight while you're wearing that. So, to gird up the loins is to hike up those skirts, tuck them into the belt so you can get to where you're going fast and ready to conquer your you know, enemy, vanquish your foes with efficiency and style. Amen. Yeah. Most, and of course, most modern translations have done some, some of the interpreting for you, which is fine, by giving it the meaning. What does he mean by this? Prepare for action. Specifically, prepare your mind for combat. Prepare your thinking for action. So Peter has been, has, uh, has been saying, he started his letter by saying how great God is, how great our salvation is. But he anticipates the question, well, okay, so what? He says, so therefore, think a different way. Get ready to think a different way so that you can live a different way. Get your mind ready for a new kind of life that's completely unlike the old kind of life. And this mindset, it's described for us. He says, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To be sober is to be serious. Uh, he's not saying we need to be dour or, or somber. 
or just grumpy and sad. He's already said that we as Christians, the people he's writing to, are rejoicing with joy inexpressible. So you can't, you can't say by being you know, sober it's to just be like, you know, not joyful. It's to be joyful, but it's to take things very seriously. Take this matter of your salvation, your new life, very seriously. Don't take it like it's a joke. The matters of sin and grace and life and death are things worthy of your full focused attention. Be sober and rest your hope fully. I really like that phrase just all by itself. Hope is heavy. Uh, to have a desire that fills your whole being, to desire a certain outcome, this can be a burden on your shoulders and in the pit of your stomach. And we're told to rest our hope fully, put all the weight of your desires and expectations and the faith you have in the promises to come. Set that stuff down on grace. Peter will tell us the same thing a few chapters later, saying that we are to be casting all our cares on him, for he cares for you. And maybe you haven't uh, connected these ideas of hope and care, but if you've had strong hopes, you have. Um, when you truly hope, all your hope, for a certain outcome, then you know that that is a weight to bear that Peter calls you to rest fully on grace. Resting all the weight of our hope on his grace is what frees us to live in the way Peter will describe in the next verses. Knowing that it is his care that lets us rest on him, it is his grace that will be the fulfillment of all our hopes, that his return, which is sure and soon, will prove our faith to be true, substantial, honorable, praiseworthy, glorious, and worth it. Knowing all this stuff, he says, if you think like this, you gird up the loins of your mind, you're going to live a different way. You think about grace in these terms, your hopes in these terms, the, re the return of Christ as something that, that is, is sure and soon. The grace that we rest our hope on that Peter's talking about is the grace of the return or re the revelation of Christ. It is the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is like John saying in, in 1 John that seeing him is a hope that compels us to purify ourselves. Right? Knowing that you're going to meet Jesus, that changes the way you live. Uh, Peter is saying that being serious about the return of Christ is the mindset shift that compels us to live well. As obedient children, verse 14, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, that as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. He says, we live now as children of a good father. And part of this preparation of the mind, which enables us to rest all of our hope upon his grace and his arrival, is the shift in your mindset from uh, either servant, stranger or servant to son. Now, of course, we are servants of God. Uh, he is Lord and King and, and Master. All hail King Jesus. But even if you have a family business and you hire your son, that son's primary identity is not assistant regional manager or even assistant to the regional manager. It is, it's your kid. No matter how much you think that you'll treat him just like everybody else, they're still, after the shift is done, then they're your kid. We serve God, absolutely. We are servants of God. We call our, our Sunday morning 10 o'clock thing we do a worship service even. Like that's, that's correct, but your primary identity in his eyes is not servant, but son. And as Peter gets into his encouragement of how to live, he's describing family values, not corporate values, okay? Not, 
not just equations that have to be filled out or, or you know, principles that are good to live by. He's talking about family values. He's saying you walk a certain way in holiness because of the family that you're a part of. You weren't always a part of this family. In fact, you inherited some really bad habits from your fathers. He says you've inherited a certain way of live, a certain way to live that can only be described as just serving your lusts. But now you're part of a different family, and that's not the way we do things around here anymore. You weren't always a part of this family. Before your adoption into this family, you lived according to your whims and wishes, which Peter calls former lusts. And he, he kind of cuts him a little slack, and he's like, you didn't know better, okay? You were ignorant. But now you're not. You know better. You know how to live. You've had the gospel preached to you. You've been redeemed, adopted, called, and chosen as, as children. Now have been born again into this family, this new family, you're called to holiness. He who called you is holy, and that's your father. So you, in striving to be like your dad, be holy in all your conduct. And there's two ways to talk about being good or being holy, which we, we need to mention when holiness or righteousness or any of these intimidating concepts may come up. Okay, there's, there's a positional holiness, and then there's a practical holiness. And we get both kinds, and we're called to both kinds, and they're both good. They're not against each other in any way. To neglect one in favor of the other is to misunderstand the situation and to be lopsided and essentially crippled. Positional holiness or positional righteousness or imputed righteousness is something that is true of every believer because they are saved. You are holy because God has made you so, and this is a righteousness that comes by faith. When Paul addresses his letters to the saints, he doesn't say the saints, and then there's like a little asterisk. He's like, and the rest of you, you know, which we feel like may make more sense, actually. But he just says to saints, and he addresses children, and he addresses uh, masters and slaves, and he addresses, you know, all the Christians of all walks of life, of every shape and size, as holy. The word saints means holy one, just like what he said. Paul addresses all of his letters to saints, which means holy ones. This is because we are made new in Christ. We are placed in Christ. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. It, it, it's his righteousness credited to your account. You have a new name, new spiritual DNA, a new nature. You are righteous because God who calls light to come out of darkness and creates light with a word has called you. When we sing the words, holiness is Christ in me, we're talking about a positional holiness. He's in us, we're in him, it's a done deal. On the merits of Christ, you are righteous. Because the Holy Spirit has chosen you in sanctification, which Peter said in verse 1 or 2, right, at the beginning of the chapter, is making, sanctification is making something holy, you are holy. This is essential Christian doctrine that cannot be ignored. We are righteous because Jesus makes us so. What can wash away my sins? Better habits. Wrong. Uh, yeah, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The wholeness is holiness. Being in Christ, being saved, means you are positionally holy. But this in no way removes the reality of practical holiness or practical righteousness. This is walking out the realities of your position your identity in real time in this fallen world where there's all the friction of other people 
and spiritual warfare and your own dead sin nature, which even though it's been defeated, seems to keep making appearances, uninvited. And you have decisions every day, each and every day. You have to choose good or evil. You are positionally holy. You are called to a behavior of holiness. You are called to a practical righteousness. Peter's already established the fact of a positional holiness. He says, you've been born again. You've been chosen in sanctification. That's all him doing the work for you. You have been given an inheritance that does not fade away. You are children of God. But when he says, be holy... He's saying, live the truth of who you really are in Christ. This means practical holiness. Living a holy life is what you are called to as holy people, as saints. The specifics of this practical holiness are going to be things Peter concerns himself with more later in the letter, with personal relationships and, and how, you, how you go to church and how you do your marriage and all of these things that Peter's going to get into, um, the, the practical decision. And this is... This is usually the way the, the letters in the New Testament are organized. They start by telling you who you are and what Christ has done for you. And then in later chapters, the, the author will outline the specifics of how to live. And really, Peter is still in the what Christ has done for us part of his letter, but he's getting ahead of himself a tiny bit. And he does boil holy living down for us in one simple phrase in verse 22, if you want to skip, skip ahead real quick. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. How do we live holy lives? There's a lot of specifics, but if you wanted the boiled down version, sounds like we're in 1 John again, right? Love one another. And the commands of God we know to be these. Believe in the one whom he sent, and that faith will establish you in positional righteousness. And then love one another. That's practical righteousness. There's a lot of ways we love each other, and those are going to be the specifics that he gets into later on in the book. But all the acts of righteousness that we are called to can certainly fall under the heading of the greatest two commandments. Love God, love people. The call to be holy as he is holy is a call to reject all lesser loves, which become idolatries, and then loving God above all else. This is a fleeing from sin. It's a hating the sin that does damage to your soul and offends our Father. It's, this is a, a, a being reformed, having our loves reshaped and our priorities reordered to make God first and foremost. The answer to our prayer in the hymn, Thou and Thou only, the first in my heart. And it's a call to pursue the good to love your neighbor as yourself, to act selflessly for the good of another, to sacrifice, to serve, to bless. This is holy living, loving God with all our hearts and showing his love to others in our actions. Now, I've noticed that Peter has a really good way of giving kind of the bottom line, boiled down version of a truth. You know, he says, be holy. And then the one real action he offers, in this section at least, for this holiness is, is love. Later, he'll talk about spiritual gifts. And you know what Paul does when he gets to that, right? There's chapters on it. He makes a long list. He'll make another one in another book. The two don't match. There's just a lot there. Um, Peter says there's uh, speaking gifts and serving gifts, just two categories, and he leaves it at that. And he just kind of sums it up, boils it down. And that's just the way he writes. He sums things up. But he doesn't cut any content when it comes to the gospel. Most of the chapter is about the holy acts of God, even though he's told us to be holy. Now, there's one directive, be holy. But most of the text here is about what Christ has done for us, and this is as it should be. 
the strength that is yours to live a holy life is dependent on that positional holiness that Christ offers you, Christ's gift of himself to you. There is no right living, Christian living, apart from what he has done for you on the cross and how he gives you his presence now. Similarly, this long section on what God has done inspires us to worship, and there's no right living without right worship. Our outward actions, the the love that we show to one another, are entirely dependent on our upward actions, our vertical relationship, the offering of our hearts in worship to the God of heaven. This is the only way our love remains uncorrupted, free from manipulative tendencies or selfishness. Loving others is our act of worship to Christ. And seeing Christ's love towards us leads us to this kind of worship. Part of this worship is walking before God as his children in the fear of the Lord. Go back to verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. Through the time of your stay here, it's because you're exiles, right? You're not here for the long term. But he's talking, he's about to tell you about your salvation some more, but he bases this on sonship. It says, if you call on the Father. And you might read that since you call him Father. It's already been established because you've been born again that he is your Father. But here's the thing. This Father of yours is without partiality and judges according to each one's work. This means that even though he is your dad, he still rewards good behavior and is proud of it and punishes evil. He is the one we want to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And when you get to heaven, with all of your failures, he's, he's still going to tell you he loves you. But there's a sense in which he will tell the faithful servant, I'm proud of you. And we as children of this good father, we, we conduct our stay here in fear, wanting our lives to be lived in a way that makes his heart proud. And Peter is appealing to that that God-given heart's desire to have our Father approve of the way we spend our lives. So Peter says, live a certain way. Conduct yourself through the time of your stay here. Um, remember, that's we're exiles, pilgrims, sojourners. This world is not our home. We're just staying here for a bit. But we need to spend our time here in fear. Now, the bottom line of how we're supposed to live is in verse 22, and it's love. And here, Peter says we're supposed to conduct ourselves in fear. For most of us, these are hard concepts to get together. Uh, it's, a hard, it's hard getting these two ideas to stand next to each other. They don't look like they play well together because we're aware of a destructive kind of terror or fear that perfect love casts out, right? We've got the Bible verse that says so. But we're, we're less aware of this other kind of fear that the Bible encourages. In Scripture, there's a kind of fear that shows up next to love all the time, all the way back even Old Testament stuff, right? Deuteronomy 10, 12 says, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him? Loving God and fearing God are two sides of the same coin. You are afraid of displeasing the one you love. You're afraid of grieving the heart of the one who is dearest to you. You know, we have a, we have a once-a-month marriage dinner, second Friday of the month, And we've been going through Song of Solomon. One of my favorite things the bridegroom says to the one he loves in that book is this. You are awesome as an army with banners. Or in the King James, we'll do the King James here. It's actually, you are terrible as an army. And this same character in the story has said, you have overcome me or conquered me with a look of your eyes. 
That's all holy fear, even the intimacy of the, even in the intimacy of the most holy love. It's the fear that comes from this knowledge that hurting the one who is closest to your heart hurts your own heart. It's knowing that his love for you is so great, so grand, so powerful, so sweet, that to shun this love or to insult this love by your own sins or you're reverting to what he calls your former lusts by trading that love for your former lusts and just feeding the, your flesh and your basest desires. This is offensive to every part of you because you love him. And Peter, knowing this and wanting to preach to the heart of these people, goes right back to the love of Christ. Verse 18, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 19, there is the centerpiece. This is where the love of God is seen most clearly, in the price that was paid to redeem your soul. He says, you walk in fear because you know that he loved you this much. Paul writes that you were purchased at a price and you are not your own. Well, here's the price. It was the blood of Jesus. And this is compared to things that Peter apparently thinks very little of, silver and gold. He says, it's not as if God redeemed you with something as cheap as all the treasure in the earth. It's not as if the price of your soul was something as fleeting as money. No, no, he paid for you with his blood. You were not cheaply bought. The blood was not extracted at a, at a blood bank either. It was shed on a cross with nails, with thorns, with beating and torture. And he says, you know this, knowing this, this is why you walk in that fear and in this love because we know how much he loved us. John writes, we love him because he first loved us. So he says, knowing this, his great love for you, live a certain way. Peter's getting to the same ideas as John, as Paul did, all the apostles and the Beatles. We love him. So we walk holy lives. We love him. So we love others. We love him only because he loved us first at great expense to himself. The way he described the sacrifice, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Corinthians 5 says Christ is our Passover. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards the Jordan, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lambs that were to be used for sacrifice, of course, were to be physically perfect, without blemish, without spot. And Jesus came morally perfect, tempted in every way as you, yet without sin. He was the only sacrifice that could be worthy of the permanent forgiveness of sins. His blood is the only offering that is valuable enough to redeem mankind. And Peter says all this. He says, the shedding of Christ's blood for your redemption. All of this was the plan in heaven all along. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. At this time, as he, Peter's writing this to the churches in, in Asia, Jesus of Nazareth had died and rose again about 30 years prior, previously. That's recent, right? 30 years ago, like it or not, is 1994, okay? And it, it happened only 30 years ago for these original recipients, but Peter reminds them that the Lamb of God, Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, well, he goes back way further than that. The book of Revelation, which describes many things from heaven's perspective rather than earth's, describes Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
Same language is used here. The cross wasn't plan B, your salvation, and his love for you was not an unfortunate necessity that arose out of some mistake made by the creator. He did have pity on us in our mistakes, but you can't see your salvation as a kind of afterthought or impulsive emotional response, as if he happened to glance at humanity in all its weakness and then scratched his head and said, I guess I should do something about that. The cross, the slaying of the lamb, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The world was made so that Christ could come into it. All things, including you and your salvation, were made by him, through him, and for him. That's why you exist. It's for Christ. This eternal son of God was revealed in history, recent history for them, that they might come to God. It says he was revealed for you in these last times, and then verse 21, who through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Faith, hope, and love. Peter's right back where he came from, talking about your salvation, the beautiful, beautiful salvation of the church, whose faith and hope are in God. And he said in verse 13, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now he's saying what that God has done He's saying what God has done in order to make this very thing possible. He raised Christ from the dead. He raised him to glory. He's seated in heavenly places so that your faith and hope are in God. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Listen to Colossians 3. This is what Paul writes. Colossians 3, 1, and 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the kind of thing Peter says when he talks about Christ being given glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We revisit these truths of the cross, the empty tomb, the ascension of Christ, of Jesus on the throne in glory, because by filling our minds and our hearts with these things, we treasure them. And we set our hearts in this place where our treasure is. We set our hope firmly in heaven. We rest our hope fully on his coming glory. Because we've seen that our lives are so wrapped up in the person of Christ that we are where he is, wherever he is. Let me tell you, it's a good place to have your hope. It's a good place on which to have your faith rest. Because while this entire world will fade away, which Peter gets into in the next passage, you have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And that's where Peter's going to loop around here at the end of the chapter. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. We talked about this line already. This is the one clear directive, the thing we actually do once we've girded up the loins of our minds and decided to walk in the fear of the Lord. This is what it looks like. It looks like loving other people. And verse 23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This is a restatement of what he already said in verse 3. In verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So twice now, twice in this letter, Peter has talked about being born again. 
And he hones in here on the incorruptible, eternal nature of this sure and steadfast salvation. Verse 24, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's a reference to a passage from Isaiah 40, and the very existence of which proves the point that it makes. Isaiah was written 700 years before Peter, and his words were still inspired and useful because the word of the Lord endures forever. And this first chapter of Peter ends like this. Now, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. What's the gospel? It's the same thing Peter's been saying in the chapter all along. It's that God has had mercy on you and begotten you again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's that he has caused you by his spirit to be born again. You who were ignorant, who conducted, whose conduct was aimless, who submitted to your own fallen nature and your former lusts, have been redeemed, bought at a price, and a very high one. The blood of the perfect Son of God was shed for you. He saved you. He's adopted you and assured you that your faith in him is sure and steadfast and will one day be proven. Your hope in him will not, be, will not disappoint. But he's big enough and strong enough for the full weight of all your hopes and fears. You need saving. And in the death and resurrection of Christ, he has done all to save you. The entirety of scripture speaks of this. Every page looks to the great and awesome saving power of a God who has had mercy on us, who was moved with compassion by our plight, and who from eternity past has determined that the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God would be the means of taking, taking away our sins. So Peter's talking about rejoicing. He's talking to a rejoicing, grieving group of exiles. For an exile, nothing is stable, right? For a refugee, things are changing. You can never really set your bags down. Grieving is like that too. You're never really at home again. But Peter is writing to a group of people who rejoice in the midst of this fallen, corrupted world, knowing that their hope is in something more real and more sure than anything in their existence thus far, anything on earth. And their salvation was purchased with something more lasting and more valuable than gold. And the gospel that they believed in is more enduring than this universe itself. So we cling to these hopes. We rest our hope fully and set our minds for the march that this hope invites to see what he has done for us, to make up our minds decisively, to walk according to these truths by loving God loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls, mind, strength, the God who has bought us. We make up our minds. We change our thinking. We get ready for, for a fight, for a march, by loving the others whom he loves. This is how we live as joyful exiles. And that's First Peter chapter 1. Let's pray with me, please. Jesus, we worship you. We worship you for for who you are, God of very God, light of light, eternal God. And we worship you for what you've done for us because we are grateful that you have saved us with such a salvation as this that is so sure and so steadfast. We ask that the words of scripture would have their full effect and would not return to you void. Bless your church with the things that were spoken this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.